You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It's the first day of fall, provided you're listening to this within about 18 hours of it dropping. But don't worry, future listener, the content will still be relevant. Summer is ending. Gone are the beaches, barbecues, and blockbusters. The big summer movies that we flock to the air-conditioned theaters to see. Or, you know, we used to. But for every Star Wars, Jaws, or Avatar, there is a huge field of lesser-known films. Also Rand's total flops. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. The show is getting back on schedule after an unplanned hiatus due in no small part to an acute flare-up in my mystery chronic pulmonary condition, makes it tough to podcast, or do VO work for that matter. So I'm going to split today's recording load between present Moxie and last year Moxie from when she recorded the Your Brain on Facts audiobook, which I swear to all that is holy, is coming. So enjoy a sample of the Your Brain on Facts audiobook, and I'll meet you back here for Act 2. Some movies, be they failures or successes, have such bad luck they genuinely seem to be cursed. Lights, curses, action. Making a movie is a difficult, time-consuming, and expensive proposition. While some projects come together naturally, others seem to have tragedy, misfortune, and plain old bad luck heaped upon them. It's all for you, Damien. Horror films are fertile ground for apparent curses, and a movie would be hard-pressed to seem more cursed than 1976 The Omen, the tale of an American diplomat in Europe who adopts a baby boy, ostensibly the Antichrist, and people around him begin dying. Even Robert Munger, who came up with the concept for the film, began to feel uneasy during pre-production, telling producer Harvey Bernard... The devil's single greatest weapon is to be invisible, and you're going to take off his cloak of invisibility to millions of people. Releasing the movie on June 6, 1976, as close as they could get to 666, probably didn't help matters. Gregory Peck had only recently agreed to take the role of the ambassador when his son shot and killed himself, leaving no suicide note. Undeterred, or perhaps therapeutically focusing on his work, Peck flew to England to begin filming. While flying through a storm over the Atlantic, Peck's plane was struck by lightning, causing an engine to catch fire and nearly crashing them into the ocean. The film's other producer, Mace Neufeld, also had his plane struck by lightning. Even after those long odds, that wasn't the end of their aerial adversity. One of the first shots planned for the film was an aerial shot of London, to be shot from a rented plane. At the last minute, the rental company gave the original plane to a group of Japanese businessmen instead. The curse didn't seem to get the update because the plane crashed, killing everyone on board. 
One scene called for Peck to be attacked by devil dogs in the form of a pack of Rottweilers. The dogs were supposed to attack a heavily padded stuntman. For reasons unknown, the dogs began to attack the stuntman in earnest, biting through the padding and ignoring their trainer's orders to stop. Another animal-based scene saw the big cat wrangler mauled to death by a tiger. As if being in a plane struck by lightning was not harrowing enough, the Hilton Hotel that Newfeld was staying at exploded. Luckily, Newfeld wasn't there at the time. Not to be deterred, the curse turned its sights to the restaurant where the producers and other film executives were going and blew it up, too. Newfeld missed the explosion by minutes. The perpetrator would turn out to be the Irish Republican Army, and it was only Newfeld's dodgy luck that he was meant to be in both places. Special effects consultant John Richardson created the Omen's unforgettable death scenes, including one in which a man is beheaded by a sheet of glass sailing off a runaway truck. Two weeks before the film was released, Richardson and his assistant, Liz Moore, were involved in a head-on collision. Moore was killed, cut in half by the other vehicle's wheel. Richardson opened his eyes after the collision to see a kilometer marker reading Omen 666. The closest town was Omen, Netherlands, and the accident happened at kilometer 66.6. Central Casting Out the Demon The highest-grossing horror movie of all time when adjusted for inflation and the first horror movie to be nominated for the Oscar for Best Picture is 1973's The Exorcist. In it, a young girl named Reagan, played by Linda Blair, is possessed by a demon and forced to commit horrible acts as two priests fight to save her. The trouble started before filming even began when the set caught fire, destroying everything except Reagan's room. The arsonist had talons, black, beady eyes, and was a harbinger of disease. A pigeon had somehow gotten into a circuit box, which caused a short that caused the fire. Reverend Thomas Birmingham, the technical advisor on the film, was asked to exercise the set, but he refused. Both Blair and Ellen Burstyn, who played her mother, were badly injured during the shoot. One scene had the demon violently throwing Reagan around on her bed. The rig to do this broke during one take, injuring Blair's back. Another scene called for the demon to throw Burstyn across the room and into a wall, which the crew achieved with a wire rig. Director William Friedkin was unhappy with the first take and told the crewman operating the rig to use more force. He did not tell Burstyn. Her cry of alarm and pain in the film is genuine. Colliding with the wall at speed injured her lower spine, leaving her in permanent pain. They were comparatively lucky. Actors Jack McGowan and Vasiliki Maliaros, whose characters die in the movie, both died while it was in post-production. At least four other people, including a night watchman, died during filming. Max von Sydow's brother died on Sydow's first day on set. Actress Mercedes McCambridge, who provided the voice of the demon Pazuzu, had to face her son murdering his wife and children before committing suicide. Many believed that the physical copies of the film were cursed, and that showing it in a theater was an open invitation to evil. 
A church across the street from an Italian theater was struck by lightning during a showing. One moviegoer was so frightened, they passed out in the theater and broke their jaw on the seat in front of them. They sued the filmmakers, claiming that subliminal messages in the film had caused them to faint. Warner Brothers settled out of court for an undisclosed amount. Not everything bad can be blamed on demons, though. People sent the 13-year-old Blair so many death threats that the studio had to provide her with a bodyguard for six months after the movie came out. Speaking of demonic possession, the 2012 movie The Possession centers on a young girl who falls under the control of a malevolent spirit that lives inside an antique box called Dibbuk and is based on an allegedly true story. Even though director Sam Raimi would not let the Dybbuk box's owner bring it anywhere near the set, strange and frightening things started happening. Lights exploded directly over people's heads, strange smells and cold air blew in from nowhere, and immediately after filming wrapped, all of the props were destroyed in a fire for which the fire department could not determine the cause. Speed kills. Repeatedly. James Dean was on the cusp of stardom when he died in a car crash before the release of Rebel Without a Cause. A second or two before his Porsche 550 Spider, nicknamed Little Bastard, crashed into a more substantial Ford sedan, Dean, according to his mechanic who was a passenger in the car, said, That guy's gotta stop. He'll see us. He did not. The tragedy didn't end with the crash. Many people believe that Porsche to be irrefutably cursed. The wrecked carcass of Little Bastard was sold at auction for $2,500, about $24,000 today, and soon after, it slipped off its trailer and broke a mechanic's leg. The engine and drivetrain were sold to two different buyers, who later raced each other in cars containing the parts. One lost control and hit a tree, killing him instantly. The other was seriously injured when his brakes suddenly locked up and his car rolled over while going into a turn. Two tires from the Porsche that were undamaged in Dean's accident were sold, only to simultaneously blow out and cause the new owner's car to run off the road. The remains of the Porsche caught the attention of two would-be thieves. One severely lacerated an arm trying to steal the steering wheel, and the other was injured trying to remove a blood-stained seat. Due to all of these strange and worrying incidents, the owner donated Little Bastard to a highway safety exhibit. The garage that housed the exhibit caught fire and burned to the ground, but the cursed car was virtually undamaged. Bonus fact. Dean wasn't the only cast member from Rebel Without a Cause to die unexpectedly. Salminio was stabbed to death outside his apartment, and Natalie Wood drowned under questionable circumstances. Pre-production hell. Some films are so jinxed they can't even get to filming. A best-selling book should make for a successful movie, provided your lead actor doesn't die. Repeatedly. A confederacy of dunces may have come under an ominous cloud because it was published after the suicide of author John Kennedy Toole. A confederacy of dunces tells the story of Ignatius J. Riley, a lazy man looking for work while living with his mother in New Orleans. 
When Hollywood came calling, it set off a chain of tragedies and failures. The first person cast in the lead, John Belushi, died of a drug overdose in 1982 before filming began. The next production was to be directed by John Waters, but his chosen lead, and the inspiration for Ursula in Disney's Little Mermaid, drag queen Divine, died of a heart attack in 1988. The same fate befell John Candy after the role passed to him in 1997. Next was Chris Farley, who died of a drug overdose later that year. The curse didn't limit itself to lead actors. The head of the Film Commission of Louisiana was murdered, and the entire city of New Orleans was nearly wiped out by Hurricane Katrina. Despite all that, producers continue to try to make the movie. Versions starring John Goodman, Will Ferrell, and Zach Galifianakis were all announced, and all faded away unfilmed, though fortunately, all three actors are alive as of this publication. Filmmaker Steven Soderbergh was quoted as saying, I think it's cursed. I'm not prone to superstition, but that project has got bad mojo on it. All right, my lovely listeners, show of hands if you like to read. Okay, now keep them up if you like true crime and dramatic crime. All right, that's a good number of people. Then you'll be excited to hear about the sponsor for today's show, Crazy Is As Crazy Does, The Life of a Serial Killer by John H. Mudgett. It is a tensely clever first-person psychological thriller. That means it's from the point of view of the serial killer, so it should go over well with fans of Dexter. And can you believe they're bringing it back after the way they ended it the first time? Though this protagonist, like Dexter, is fictional, the settings and scenarios are firmly rooted in reality. Follow this strange twist on the hero's journey from disorganized criminal to criminal mastermind. Available in both a physical copy and ebook, it's free if you have Kindle Unlimited. Crazy is as crazy does. The Life of a Serial Killer by John H. Mudgett. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. My grandmother had a lovely cross-stitch sampler above her fireplace with a quote that I really took to heart and I've carried with me through my life. Everything happens for a reason. Sometimes the reason is you're stupid and make bad decisions. Now, I wish my grandma had a sense of humor like that. Every movie that fails does so for a reason. Several, usually. A veritable swarm of failure bees 
ready to sting the audience right in the brain and the studio right in the wallet. And sometimes that sting is fatal. For the studio, I mean, I don't know of any cases where someone died because the movie they were watching was so bad it killed them. At least that gives Tommy Wiseau something to strive for. Like we saw with the banking crisis, there's no such thing as too big to fail in Hollywood either. Take Eddie Murphy, for example. He was already established thanks to his roles in 48 Hours and Trading Places before 1984's Beverly Hills Cop. I will risk the copyright strike. I do not care. If Hollywood were a lady, she was throwing her panties at Eddie Murphy until around, let's say, 1995's Vampire in Brooklyn. Since then, for every Shrek, there are three Norberts, or one Pluto Nash. Did you see this fart bomb of a movie when it came out in 2002? Yeah, neither did anyone else. His first foray into live-action family comedies stank like a pair of armored trousers after the Hundred Years' War. The sci-fi comedy, that's what the studio called it, didn't receive one breath of praise in the media, with everybody lambasting the script, the humor, the acting, the effects, pretty much everything. And then they dragged poor Rosario Dawson into it. Its 4% rating on Rotten Tomatoes pretty much says it all, though the audience gave it a generous 19%. One of the biggest box office flops ever the movie had a $100 million budget, but earned $7.1 million in theaters worldwide, meaning a loss of a whopping $92.9 million. Sometimes the likely cause of a movie's failure is staring us all right in the face, but it feels like no one's talking about it, even though we all talked about it. The casting of Johnny Depp in the are you sure there's nothing else in the bottom of this barrel, elephant in the room, 2013's The Lone Ranger? Depp was joined by fellow Pirates of the Caribbean alums Gore Verbinski and Jerry Bruckheimer, and the House of Mouse must have felt confident this wonder trio could bring home the gold. Yeah, no. The production ran into troubles, costs escalated, and the whole thing was nearly shut down before it was finished. When it finally hit cinema screens, The Lone Ranger was slammed by critics and shunned by audiences. But it did still manage to garner two Oscar nominations for visual effects and makeup and hairstyling. Must have been a light year. The Lone Ranger lost almost Pluto Nash's production budget, being in the red by $98 million. If you look at film losses as the ratio of budget to loss, you've got to tip your hat to 2016's Monster Trucks. Paramount hoped to launch a franchise because there is literally no other way to run a movie studio these days. But kids can be as fickle with their entertainment options as they are with the sides on their dinner plate. The $125 million CGI romps opening barely scraped over $10 million at the box office, meaning a loss of $115 million quick point of clarification if it's necessary, we're talking about films with fairly wide releases from major studios with big ad budgets. Projects from smaller producers have a riskier time with it. I actually made a documentary about producing the official George R.R. R. Martin-approved Game of Thrones burlesque show 
and being invited out to his theater in Santa Fe to perform for the man himself. When it was ready, we showed it in a local boutique theater here in town, and a whopping five people showed up. So I get it. Now, if you Google for the lowest grossing film of all time, you'll find a film that was mentioned in episode 101 to your health spa, the scam health retreat episode. But it happened on purpose, from a certain point of view. 2006's Zizek Road was shown once a day, at noon, for six days, at the Highland Park Village Theater in Dallas, Texas, in a theater rented by the producers for $1,000. The filmmakers wanted a limited release. They didn't want to release the film domestically until it underwent foreign distribution, but they had to do a domestic release to fulfill the U.S. release obligation required by the Screen Actors Guild for low-budget films. Low-budget is actually quantified as those with budgets less than $2.5 million that are not meant to be direct-to-video. That strategy made Zizek Road the lowest-grossing film in history. Officially, it earned a whopping box office total of $30 from six patrons. Unofficially, it really only took in $20 after the leading man refunded two tickets to the movie's makeup artist and the friend she brought with her. Lots of movies fail, happens every day, but some films fail so spectacularly they take the whole studio down with them, sometimes nearly and sometimes very actually. Students of movie history with a penchant for disasters know all about 1963's Cleopatra, starring the downright diva-ish Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. The period epic had such a disjointed production that the actors didn't know what scene was being shot when until they arrived at the set. With a budget swelling uncontrollably to $44 million, the largest at the time, equivalent to about $392 million today, the movie faced a real uphill battle to break even, let alone turn a profit. Movie tickets cost 85 cents then, and there was no home video market, so 20th Century Fox would have needed to have sold 56 million tickets to stay in the black. Quick Google, population of the U.S., 190 million at the time. So, yeah, ain't gonna happen, Captain. They were pretty much screwed. Cleopatra holds the unique distinction of being the highest-grossing film in history to lose money. Although the studio didn't fold, Fox was forced to sell off 300 acres of its lot and postpone other productions to avoid permanently closing its doors. Cleopatra did eventually recoup its budget with foreign distribution, but 1964's historic epic, The Fall of the Roman Empire, wasn't as lucky. Samuel Brunston Productions spent a fortune recreating the 92,000-square-meter Roman Forum that once served as the heart of the ancient city, in turn building Hollywood's largest-ever outdoor set. The movie had Sophia Loren in it, for God's sake. Do you know what she'd look like in 1964? Sadly, Fall of the Roman Empire only managed to earn back a quarter of its $19 million budget. Just three months after its release, Bronston's own empire fell into bankruptcy. Speaking of big decisions at Fox, one of the people who greenlit Star Wars was Alan Ladd Jr., who left to form his own studio, Ladd Company. For my British listeners, feel free to pause and imagine an all-Ladd movie studio. Oi, oi, we'll wait. 
The Ladd Company pursued ambitious projects like The Right Stuff, based on Tom Wolfe's book about the early days of the space program. I mean, that was a big hit, wasn't it? I never saw it, but it has good name recognition. While critics sang its praises and it won four Oscars, The Right Stuff failed to find enough audience at the box office. The same thing happened with Twice Upon a Time, an animated feature executive produced by George Lucas, which did not have good name recognition and I did not hear about. And doing a Google image search doesn't look even 1% familiar. Even though the Ladd Company still had Police Academy in the shoot, they were forced to sell their assets to Warner Brothers. Speaking of name recognition, even films that are iconic these days bombed big time when they came out. Try to imagine TV in December without every single channel running Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life at least twice a week. Trivia fans, which should be everyone in here, already know that It's a Wonderful Life didn't do well in its release. A release in January, it's worth mentioning, which may have been part of the problem. Before it lapsed into the public domain, and it was shown by every TV station needing content on the cheap. Hell, there was a local station where I grew up in rural northeastern Pennsylvania that used a jingle of the phrase, It's a Wonderful Life, as their tagline. The same why-would-you-even-do-that release date misstep happened with Hocus Pocus, too. It was released originally in July, well before social media had made loving Halloween a major personality trait. And then Disney sat on the movie for over a year before putting it out on home video the next September. Back in 1946, It's a Wonderful Life's disappointing performance was devastating for Capra and his production studio, Liberty Films. Capra and fellow filmmakers George Stevens and William Wyler were trying to free themselves from meddling studio executives, but their professional freedom was short-lived. With no track record, Liberty Films needed the movie to live up to Capra's usual standards of excellence. But it didn't and Capra was forced to sell Liberty to Paramount and go work for someone else. If you've been saying, I haven't heard of half these dead people, well, let's switch it up. How about Francis Ford Coppola? Coppola shaped the landscape of 70s cinema. Ever hear of The Godfather? Apocalypse Now? Yeah, thought so. The 80s, not as much, though. His first movie of the decade, One from the Heart, spent the majority of its large budget on pioneering visual techniques and a faithful recreation of Nevada's McCarran International Airport. He's a details guy. But fans of his earlier, grim-dark, gritty, hyper-masculine work were left completely baffled when they sat down for a Coppola movie and found themselves in a candy-colored Vegas musical rom-com. The film failed to pull in even a million dollars against its budget of $27 million. Coppola's own studio, Zeotrope, never recovered from the financial loss. Speaking of film legends who stumble headlong into bankruptcy, we present for the consideration of several readers, Don Bluth. Bluth left his job as an animator at Disney in 1979 to create the animation department at 20th Century Fox. We're talking The Secret of Nim, An American Tale, The Land Before Time, and Bluth and crew at Fox Animation put those out while Disney delivered disappointing efforts like The Great Mouse Detective and Oliver and Company. But Disney found its footing again with The Little Mermaid in 1989, and they've been unquestionably unstoppable ever since. In 1997, 
Bluth released the critically acclaimed Anastasia. Less than three years later, the studio was gone. In June 2000, Titan AE hit theaters, a lush, traditionally animated movie with great character design and solid casting and acting that flew through brightly colored space and braved alien worlds. It wasn't a bad movie. For some reason, despite having a hysterically bad memory, I can still remember the chorus of the song from the big Let's Do Fun Things with the Spaceship sequence. Titan AE hit theaters, but not, you know, real hard. Fox Animation spent $85 million on a movie targeted at a teen audience who are not a big enough segment of the broader animation viewing market. It earned $9 million on its opening weekend, and the following week, Fox announced it was closing the studio. The writing had already been on the wall. In December of 99, executives forced Bluth to lay off 80% of his animators after the box office bonanza that was the CGI Toy Story 2 led Fox execs to conclude hand-drawn animation was on its way out. Prior performance is no predictor of future success. The Land Before Time didn't help Bluth with Titan AE, and not even the freaking Lord of the Rings trilogy with its many Oscars could save New Line Cinema. From its creation in the 1970s, and even after Warner Brothers bought a controlling stake, New Line Cinema was a mid-major movie studio that acted like an indie, taking chance on edgy, quirky things like Pink Flamingos, Boogie Nights, and Mortal Kombat. If you don't think Mortal Kombat belongs with those other examples, the only video game movies up until that point had been Street Fighter, Blarg, Double Dragon, Yawn, and Super Mario Bros., a veritable kick in the nards to both gamers and moviegoers. Four years after The Return of the King ended the Lord of the Rings trilogy, in its own damn sweet time, New Line wanted another fantasy series cash cow, and it looked to The Golden Compass, Philip Pullman's first entry in the His Dark Materials trilogy. New Line pumped $200 million into the project, more than it had spent on The Lord of the Rings. To offset these high production costs, the company pre-sold the overseas rights, essentially getting an advance, meaning that when the film hit theaters outside of North America, they wouldn't see any more money. That made profit virtually impossible, as did the film's relatively small $70 million domestic take. Thus, Warner Brothers absorbed New Line into its existing film production division. Well, 10% of them anyway. The other 90% got sacked. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. I want to thank everyone again for their patience in this production interruption, and hopefully things will be smooth and predictable from here on out. That definitely wasn't like saying, what's the worst that could happen, dooming me to failure or anything. Surely not. Remember, you can always find the script and the source notes at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and stay safe. history but hate when it's stuffy and boring well look no further and join me katie charlwood your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books as i delve into unsolved historical mysteries murders by gaslight and of course women who have been misrepresented through all time 
on Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.